Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. What is it about the business world that seems to resist love? That's what Steve Farber found himself asking as he took his career from a youthful passion for music to trading commodity futures and eventually to running his own leadership development company. Whether you're an entrepreneur or an employee, the best business opportunities may come as the result of letting love guide your choices. As Steve points out in his new book, love is just damn good business. In this Hack the Process interview, Steve will tell us how he reinvented his career as he discovered new passions, why he believes mentorship is more than just a pat on the back at a free meal, and what trade-offs he considered when he decided to work with a publisher instead of self-publishing. So today I'm speaking with Steve Farber, and he is the founder and chairman of the Extreme Leadership Institute and the author of a new book, Love is Just Damn Good Business. Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, David. Thanks for having me on. Great. I'm looking forward to learning all about love from you. <laughs> well, I don't know that I could that I could address all about love, but <laughs> certainly in the context of business. The relevant aspects, at least. It's not a word a lot of people throw around, around a business context, although I will say that I personally use it a great deal in my own business work. How so? It's just something that that integrates into the coaching that I do. I work with a lot of teams who are doing agile practices, and I'm trying to get them to appreciate and enjoy what they're doing. And if they're not coming from a place of love, sometimes it's difficult for them to get their heads around how the practices can benefit them. Yeah, yeah, that's great. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, we're not accustomed to using the word love and business in the same sentence. And when I say we, that's kind of the grand we, right? That's the generally speaking, you know, organizationally speaking, we don't hear the word used a lot. But yet, when you talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, as you're describing, you do hear it a lot. And, you know, I hear it a lot with technologists, with engineers, with scientists. You know, there's a great deal of love and passion for their work. But when you step back a little bit and generalize everything, it's like, nah, love, that's not, we don't do that here. That's for the rest of your life. <laughs> that's true. You hear it in the arts. You hear it in music, for example. You hear it in the technical fields. You don't hear it so much on the business side of things, and particularly the, the products side of things, sometimes in the executive suite, but it's difficult to come across. I'm curious what made you focus in on that as the place you were putting your attention. Yeah, thank you. It's a great question. I've, you know, I'll give you a little background on this. I've been in the field of, I guess we could call it leadership development for 30 years. So I've been around and I've, I've, you know, had exposure to and worked with and spoken to and facilitated for and coached every kind of industry you can imagine, which kind of makes me an expert in none of them, uh, other than the human aspect of, of all of them, which at least for now is most companies, if not all. This really came out of a lot of observation over a lot of years. And even though love is not part of the, you know, accepted lexicon in most businesses, it's just like you said a minute ago, when you sit down one-on-one -on -one with really great leaders, you hear the word a lot, right? Now, tell me about your team. Oh, I love my team. Tell me about your company. I love my company. I love my technology. I love my products. I love this place. I, lo hey, I love my customers. You hear it over and over and over again. And it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that there's a direct correlation between people that have that connection with their work and the people they're working with and the results that they get, right? This didn't come from a place of, of sentiment. And it's certainly not, you know, you and I, you know, we're both here in California. So I, I could say this as one Californian to another. It's not California touchy-feely hoo-ha crap. <clears throat> it's, it's a very real part of our experience as business people. And then something odd happens. When you change the context from a one-on-one -on -one conversation to, say, a team meeting, a collective conversation, if I were to ask that same leader in front of their team, hey, tell me how you think about your team. Here they are. They're sitting right here. What do you think about them? Oh, they're great. They're amazing. They're, you know, all the other words, but the love thing tends to disappear, right? And 
this isn't about using the words. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should go around telling everybody that we love them because this is about putting that heart into practice, into the way that we actually do business. But I do think a part of it is acknowledging, let's see it for what it is. Let's call it love because that's what it is. And then once we can kind of face that and accept it, we can really begin to put it into practice in some significant ways. And it also makes people do a double take when they see that word in a business context. And I, you know, I wouldn't discount the value of the lexical distinctness of that because it forces people to think outside of the normal way that they're approaching their work when you throw a word like love in the middle of the business context. Absolutely right. We're in absolute agreement about that. And, and specifically, so a couple of things. First of all, I'm saying that we shouldn't treat the solution or treat the application of this is simply the use of the word. It's not enough just to say, to print the buttons, for example, that say we love our customers or to print the banners. And then that's as far as it gets. But yes, you're right. By calling it love, by calling it what it is, it creates a different dynamic, right? It creates a different set of expectations. Because if, for example, if I say, you know, let's, let's brainstorm some ways as to how we can better serve our customers. That's one thing. But if I say, if I set it up as, Let's brainstorm ways that we could show our customers that we really love them. We might even come up with exactly the same ideas, but the implementation of it is going to come from a very different place. And I suspect we're going to come up with much greater ideas because we set the bar that much higher. So the language is absolutely important. for this. How did you come to the realization that this was the concept that you were focusing in on? Well, you know, my, my first book was called The Radical Leap, which came out in its first edition in 2004. Even there, and in everything I've done since, love has been at the, at the foundation of it. So LEAP is a framework that stands for love, energy, audacity, and proof. Okay? Now, where that came from was, again, from a lot of observation, working with a lot of people, and then just asking myself, okay, Based on everything that I've learned from my mentors, like Jim Cousins and Barry Posner and Tom Peters and some of the great thinkers of our day, everything I've learned from them and from my clients, if I had to net this all out, or the way I asked it was, if I had the kind of power where I could flip a magic switch and have everybody get it, what would it be? And that's where that leap framework came from. And at the core of it is love. People would get that this is really about cultivating love as the foundation for leadership and the foundation for business. So it came from a combination of observation and then reflection on that, which is what we all should be doing, right? We should all be looking at our experience and then asking ourselves and having conversations with each other. What are we learning from this? What's the lesson in this? And that lesson just became very, very clear to me that this was really all about love. So in the first, in my first three books, The Radical Leap, The Radical Edge, Greater Than Yourself, I addressed love as really the foundation for all of it. So people that are familiar with my work and people who've heard me speak, which I do quite a bit of and have been for a while, they've heard this idea. But with this book, with the new book, obviously it's right there in the title, right? Love is just damn good business. It's, it's just putting it front and center so it's really the culmination of, of a lot of work over a lot of time. And it, it's also the culmination of what's been at the core of, uh, of what I've been teaching people for a while. And, you know, you'd be surprised. Actually, maybe you wouldn't be surprised, David, but a lot of people would be surprised that there is really very little resistance to this idea. I think people already get it. They already have the instinct. They already have the impulse for the most part. There's always exceptions, certainly. But when somebody like me comes along and says, no, you know, that love thing, that's right. You should, you should do that. You know, that, that feeling that you already have, you know, that instinct that you've been kind of pushing down, do that and see what happens. And it just lights people up. When you put truth out in front of somebody, they follow it. They recognize it and they, they absorb it. It gets right into them. This doesn't sound like the sort of insight that just comes from years of working, though. I'm really curious if this is something that probably combines something from your personal life as well as from your business life. Yeah, it does. It's a very insightful question. Thank you. So there's a couple of things. I mentioned my mentors before. Jim Cousins and Barry Posner are the, the co-authors of the Leadership Challenge. And they've been conducting probably the most significant body of research on leadership on the planet for 40 years now. So Jim was the president of the Tom Peters Company, 
when I joined there back in 1994. And I, I really went deep into his body of work. And one of the things that he and Barry found quite some time ago was that leaders, when, when leaders were asked why they stepped up to a particular challenge, they used the word love a lot to describe that. And they kind of encapsulated that and other elements of it into a practice they call encouraging the heart. So I got that, that impetus from, from my mentor, right? I didn't invent love. It's just that Jim and Barry really kind of initially, sh you know, shined a spotlight on it, which then led me in that direction. I put more focus on that and really paid attention to how much that plays out. Right. So that's one thing. But also from my own personal experience, you know, I have a I have a very rich life as far as relationships go. So love is something it's a connection and a feeling and an experience that I value deeply in my life, as I think most of us do. I have great friends. I have great family. And love is, has always been really prevalent in that. And also in the colleagues that I worked with at the Tom Peters company before and after. I love these people. They're lifelong friends. So I'm, I'm already kind of attuned to that, I guess. But early in my career, I started out as an entrepreneur. You know, I didn't go to speaker school and then, and then become a, you know, facilitator and coach and consultant and author. I started out as a business guy in the financial services industry. When I was really young, I had my own company and started a family before I was 30 years old. So I learned about business. I learned that I loved business. But I was in the commodities futures business. And what I discovered, and I'm not, you know, this is a, you know, it's an investment vehicle. It's like the stock market, except it's risky, if that puts it in perspective for you, right? Riskier than the stock market? I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, you've, it's scare, much scarier than the stock market. Oh, my gosh. It doesn't hold it. The stock market's like a checking account next to the futures market. So I learned that business because, you know, I wanted to be a musician is where this all started. And then I had a family, and I, what I found was that playing music and feeding people were, uh, were mutually exclusive realities. So I gave up music, I went into business, and that was the commodities futures business that I started in because a friend of mine gave me an opportunity to learn it. So here's what I learned. I ended up with my own shop. I learned I was an entrepreneur, had my own company, I had my own you know, brokers, and I did everything that an entrepreneur needs to do in terms of everything from hiring to marketing to compliance to everything. The one issue was I hated it. I, I hated it with a steaming passion. That industry and I, you know, I had a moral dilemma with my own industry, and the reason was very simple. People lost their money. It didn't matter how much they knew what the risk was going in ahead of time, which they always did. It didn't matter that they never, you know, blamed me for it because it's the nature of the beast. That didn't matter. It still made me feel terrible. So I learned at an early, in my early business age, and this is in my late 20s, actually, what the experience is to really not just not love your work, but to really hate it. And, and it created misery. I was, I was in a miserable state for years and years. And when I finally, and it's, it's, a, it's a long involved story that I won't get into here, but I finally got out of that business and got into, found the, the path that I'm on now. And I felt everything change because suddenly I went from hating what I was doing to loving, you know, teaching workshops and, and, and helping business people. And it just, I, I felt that qualitative difference inside. And I saw the impact that it had on my quality of life. And I also saw the impact it had on the quality of my work that I did. I just got really good at what I do, not only because I loved it and I had a talent for it and I worked really hard on developing the skills, but the contrast between the before and after contrast was so great that I really, you know, I never took it lightly. I never took it for granted. And I think as I got into a position of, you know, more and more over time of actually having some influence over how other people worked, the, the love element really rose to the fore, not just because I saw it work in other people and, and observed it, as you said, but because I experienced it in my own life as well. That's interesting. And for you, that also crossed over between the entrepreneurial approach and the employee approach, which sometimes people find that that's where those two divide in their lives. 
Yeah, very true. So there's there's a really interesting kind of mythology because, you know, I, I am an entrepreneur and I spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs and I do a lot of work with entrepreneurs, but I also, you know, I spend a great most of my time in the corporate world. I mean, that's that's been kind of my playground as it were. So I I see that line and I've I've danced that dance between entrepreneur, business owner and employee. When I was at the Tom Peters company, you know, my original when I originally started talking with them back in 1994, I thought I would just be a contractor and then they would, you know, I would just do contract work for them. And then they invited me to join the firm, and that was tough. I, it was a hard decision to make because I, at that time, I, I had trouble saying the word employee in reference to myself without, without gagging, you know. But I did it. And, wow, I had an amazing experience there. So, I, and, you know, I was a principal of the company, so I was still in a leadership role. But I was an employee, technically speaking, and it felt great. So the myth that I see happen in a lot of entrepreneurs is that in order to love your work, in order to be happy at work, in order to be fulfilled at work, you can't work for somebody else. You have to be an entrepreneur. And that's just not true. And if it were true, if it were really true, entrepreneurs would be in great trouble because an entre a successful entrepreneur has to hire people. <laughs> right? You have to have employees. So what are you saying? What are you saying to your employees? I'm sorry, I'm the only one that can love this because I'm the owner and you're an employee. So it's your job to be miserable here. It, it's, it doesn't make any sense. So yes, the dynamic is different. You know, you would think that you have more autonomy as an entrepreneur than you do as an employee. Doesn't always feel that way. There's a lot of times I don't feel like I have any autonomy at all. Because if I don't get that shit done that I got to get done, it's not going to happen. So I'm reporting to somebody, even if it's myself, right? So yeah, I think this is not loving our work, loving what we do, loving the, the impact that we can have on people is absolutely not the sole domain of entrepreneurs. It's open to all of us. And I believe it's our obligation whenever we're in a, in a positional leadership role in a company, it's our obligation to create a culture that people love working in. And if we can do that, we create products and services that our customers are going to love. And it's, it's going to come back. That's really the whole point of love is just damn good business. This stuff comes back in the form of everything that we look for as business people, more money, more customers, more growth, et cetera. So you're consulting for leadership that came from your own experience, I guess, as a leader and the things that you realized that you needed. Yes. Yes, in large part. And, you know, my focus on leadership, again, was really very much a part of the people, the professional people that I ended up associating myself with. So before I joined the Tom Peters company, I was with an international consulting company that focused more on culture stuff. And even though we didn't call it that so much at the time, this was back in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, and more of a customer, creating a customer service kind of a culture, right? And then when I joined the Tom Peters company, my focus shifted to leadership because that was their focus. That was their, their main thing. And then I became, you know, a really deep student on the subject at the time that we were helping our clients with it. So it was a passion that was, was born in my own experience. And I always loved that leadership role. And over time, I think I just got more, I, I got more knowledgeable on it and had more experience in it and began to realize that, and this is not going to sound terribly profound because it's, it's not, it seems kind of obvious. But really, the quality and success of a company always comes down to the quality of its leadership. So what a great leverage point. So I figured, man, if I can really help people with this part, we affect everything. It's absolutely true. And it's important to approach that with a lot of compassion. I don't think that people realize just what a stressful and difficult position it is to be in a leadership role and have that authority. There isn't the autonomy that people think that they might have in that role. Right. Yeah. There's this, uh, again, there's, another, there's a lot of mythologies tied up in, in all this stuff. But the other myth about leadership is that, you know, once you, once you get that position, you have arrived. And, you, and that's it. And you're there. You're at the, at the pinnacle. And you have all this amazing kind of influence and power. And all of us, none of us gets to that point. If we think we get to that point, then we're, we're, we're delusional. One of my favorite quotes from another of my mentors, a guy named Terry Pierce, it's one that I, I quote in just about every keynote I've ever given. It's my all-time favorite. He was trying to describe what happens when he's coaching executives. And they begin to realize what this leadership stuff really is, what the implications really are, and the kind of reaction they can have to it. So here's, here's the way he put it. He said, 
there are many people who think they want to be matadors only to find themselves in the ring with 2,000 pounds of bull bearing down on them and then discover that what they really wanted was to wear tight pants and hear the crowd roar. <laughs> I love that. And that's so true. You know, it's like we think, oh, that's so glamorous, the status, the applause, you know, and then and you realize that there's a literal or figurative bull coming right at you. And that's what leadership is. It's that it's the, the that incredible challenge that is, you know, has very significant personal implications and is and is a risky endeavor for anybody. Well, clearly you're somebody who found yourself in the ring wearing the tights, but you decided that that was where you wanted to be and battling the bull was what you wanted for your life. That's right. And it wasn't about the accolades and the applause. It was about making a difference. Although, you know, honestly, it's always nice to get accolades and applause, but it's when it's when the priorities get out of whack that we run into problematic leadership, right? If I'm doing it to feed my ego, it becomes obvious and it ultimately has a destructive impetus. On the other hand, if I'm taking this leadership role from love, because I love the business, the values that we stand for, the, the future we can create together, I love the people I'm working with, I love the clients that I'm serving, it's not a guarantee of success, certainly, but, it's, but it is all but a guarantee for a phenomenal experience along the way and a better chance of success than the alternative. Mm, and it's great that you put the focus on the experience along the way. I think people tend to forget they're looking always at the goal and they're not looking at the fact that we're at our goal for a microsecond at one point in time, but we're getting there most of the time. Yeah. Yeah, there really isn't. I guess there is. I was going to say there's no such thing as mission accomplished, but there is. I mean, you can ac accomplish a mission, but the mission of leadership or of an organization is never accomplished fully because it's always going to evolve and there's always going to be another another place to take it absolutely so one of the things you you mentioned was the importance of relationships in your life and how that helped inform your focus on love and you mentioned mentorship in particular i'm always interested in asking people about their experiences with mentorship on both sides of the equation yeah it's it's a subject near and dear to my heart actually my third book is called greater than yourself which is really really a focus on you can think of it as mentoring on steroids and the premise is that the greatest leaders become the greatest leaders by making others greater than themselves. So to me, mentoring isn't simply getting together with your mentee, which I think is a word we made up, I'm not sure, and having lunch occasionally and saying, oh, so tell me, how's it going? Good, 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 nice, nice, pat on the head, and then pick up the check. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what mentoring is to me. A, a true mentor, a greater than yourself, or I call it GTY for short, for obvious reasons. Uh, a GTY mentor is somebody that invests themselves in others with the expressed purpose of raising that person up, even above themselves. So if I can gain a reputation of cranking out superstar after superstar, then that makes me one of the greatest leaders there is. So it's a bit of a paradox. I become the greatest leaders by making others greater than myself. So that's, that's the intent behind it. So for, again, for me, that's informed by a lot of my own relationships. I'd say my, my most significant mentor in a personal way is probably a toss-up between you know, two people that I've already mentioned, and I, I never do anything without mentioning these guys and quoting them, et cetera, et cetera, is uh, Jim Cousins and uh, Terry Pierce. And you know, Jim saw in me something when I was a consultant at the Tom Peters Company he saw something in me that encouraged him to not just take me on as a contractor, but bring me in full time. So he saw something in me that said, I want what this guy has and who he is as part of our permanent team, which was a tremendous, even though it was a difficult decision to make to become an employee, it was tremendously, it gave me such confidence because oh, here's a guy who's, you know, he's a, an expert in the field and a thought leader in his own right. So expressing that confidence, not just saying, hey, good job, keep it up, but giving me that opportunity. And then shortly thereafter, inviting me to become part of the leadership team. So I became a vice president of the company one of a small group of people that were that were running the show there and then the accolades that he was he was so free with the encouragement and the accolades i remember the very first time i hadn't been at the company very long and we put on a public workshop public leadership challenge workshop down in the bajaro dunes area you know just south of san francisco and a bunch of you know clients from the tom peters company and they came to this program many of them because jim jim Cousins himself 
was facilitating this program. So he asked me to co-facilitate it with him to kind of cut my teeth, right? So it was a four-day off-site with, you know, all the experiential stuff. And, and here I am with the guy. And then, you know, occasionally he'd give me the front of the room and I'd get up and do my thing. And it was such fun. I was so nervous. And then afterwards in a company meeting with everybody, and we were doing a debrief and Jim said to me, and I will never forget these words, he said, he said, you did a phenomenal job. He said, you, you've just been here, you know, a couple of weeks. You did a phenomenal job. He said, I don't know how you do it. And then he said, a little twinkle in his eye, watch it. <laughs> <laughs> and that started the you know, working relationship that went on for six and a half years where we had lots of opportunities to work together. And that gave me such a foundation for, you know, for, for what I went on to do ultimately. And with his full blessing, by the way. And then Terry Pierce, who's the author of a book called Leading Out Loud, which is all about authentic leadership communication, uh, was, was very personally involved in kind of my whole, my whole developmental process as a leader in that company. And it was just uh, gave me more words of advice than I could ever, ever hope to impart on anybody else. <laughs> That's wonderful. It must have been a tough decision then to, to leave the company and go off alone. It was. What happened was I really found a passion for, at the time, and still is a huge passion of mine, and, and I do a lot of it, keynote speaking, going in and putting on a show for an hour to 90 minutes. Now, our model was all around facilitation and coaching and consulting. So if I had a keynote speech on a Wednesday, let's say, in the middle of the week, it would take me off of the calendar for the rest of the week for you know a five-day offsite which was really our bread and butter. So I wanted to pursue that, and the company wanted me to pursue it. So we just kind of decided together that I should go off on my own. And it took six months. From that conversation, the time I left was actually a half a year because, you know, we wanted to do the transition right. And they gave me such such an amazing send-off. And, you know, it was so far from the all the stereotypical stuff that you hear about as a you know, clash of egos and I don't need you people. I'm going off on my own and, you know, the hell with you and burn the bridges. And it was so not like, it was the exact opposite of that. You know, I got wonderful endorsements from Tom Peters and Jim Kuzis. I left. Great support from my friends. And I even came back and participated in some of the company meetings afterwards. So it was just, a, it was a wonderful thing. But it, it took time and I've never looked back. That was almost 20 years ago. That was in, in the year 2000 when I left that company. It's been an amazing ride ever since, and ever since and because of the experience I had there with those guys. So was that the founding of the Extreme Leadership Institute? It was indeed, yeah. Uh, at first, it was Extreme Leadership Inc., and then it kind of morphed into the Extreme Leadership Institute over the years as we got into doing more you know, consulting. So now, you know, it's kind of full circle. We do a full-on consulting culture change programs, everything from workshops to, you know, the, the culture change process stuff. We certify people in the Extreme Leadership Workshop, and, you know, I've got about 150 certified facilitators around the world now. So it's been kind of cool to kind of, you know, come back around to where, where it all started, but in a different context. And now, you know, something built around my own body of work. That's interesting. So you, you left the Tom Peters and you formed your own institute and it's basically, it's reproduced some of the structure, but around the format and the ideas that you're bringing to the table. Yeah, but it took a long time to get there. So at first, really all I was doing was focusing on speaking and writing. So I left in, in 2000. So really kind of got things underway 2000, 2001. And I was out there on this, on the, you know, the so-called speaker circuit. And then I started writing what eventually became the radical leap. That came out in 2004, and that's really all I did. I had a very simple business model. I wrote books, and I spoke about the content, and people would hire me to hear about the content, but I did no consulting, no training, no workshops, not, nothing. And then in uh, 2000, it wasn't until 2011 or 12, when I, when I got the right kind of mix of the right people together is when we started moving into that arena as well. How did you know you were at critical mass to get to that point? It wasn't so much critical mass, it was, it was having the right people, I think, was, was the key. You know, I, I don't love instructional design, for example. Well, no, I, I love instructional design. I just don't love doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I love good instructional design. So I wanted to have my work had around the radical leap, love, energy, audacity, and proof had been out there long enough in book form and the keynotes, and people were starting to use it. 
and was having an impact. So I said, okay, uh, it'd really be great to put that in the form of a, of a workshop and then build some consulting around it. But I didn't have the time or the talent to really do that in a way that I felt would be worthy until I met, uh, originally it was a guy by the name of Steve Delf who developed this program and we started working on that together. And then little by little, I brought in other people. Now I have Jenna Lynch, who's the president of the Extreme Leadership Institute, is a phenomenal consultant. I mean, this woman has helped over 25 companies make it onto the best place to work list, you know, and then she, she came on board because she, you know, she had loved my work. I loved her work. She's the president of the company now. For me, it's about finding the right people and not so much about, you know, cranking out the growth formula on this. Although, honestly, I really should be doing more of that. I could be better at that part. Well, I love that the metric that you focus in on is that they got onto the best place to work list, which means that your your consulting is around making the places where people are working into better places to be. Exactly, exactly. Because listen, what is a better demonstration of love than I love this place so much that I'm going to, as an employee, I'm going to rate this as the best place to work, which is where most of these lists come from. It comes from, you know, in both an internal measure and then an external analysis of it. Yeah, we have companies now. There's a company up in, up in Seattle called uh, OAC Services. They're an engineering consulting firm. They went from never participating to top 15 best place to work in the state of Washington. They made it to number two one year. Trailer Bridge, completely different animal. Shipping and logistics company in Jacksonville, Florida, have been rated number one and number two best place to work in the city of Jacksonville. And what they will both tell you is they got there by operationalizing love, by taking these ideas that we're talking about and putting them into practice. So it is a great measure because there's something, it's very tangible, right? It's one thing to say, let's create a place that we all love being in. Okay, cool. But if we've got a, a, an objective kind of outside entity saying, you guys, we recognize you guys as a best place to work company. That's about as tangible as it gets. But then, of course, we also measure things like profitability, which goes up. By We measure things like employee turnover, which drops significantly. And all the things that, you, know, that you, you, you would think would come out of being a place that people love working in. And you would think it, and in this case, you'd be right. It makes sense because those, those feel like the elements that would make up a metric like that. And it's it's challenging for leaders because often they're brought in with the goal of improve quarterly profits. And they're not thinking about the, they're, they're not being tasked with the people when they're being asked for that. But the role of leadership, the, the responsibility of leadership is the people. Exactly. And, you know, that you, you just pointed out the, the great divide, the great dilemma in our thinking about work and our thinking about business. We tend to think of those two things that you mentioned, let's say profitability, increased revenue, whatever, and quote unquote, the people thing as two different things that really our job is to get results. And then there are some people that pay attention to the people thing too. Whereas of course, it should be pretty obvious to all of us by now, you would think that you get one from the other. If you create the right kind of environment with the right people, you'll get the results. And as business people, that's why you do it. That's the, you know, if you have to really translate everything into a bottom line motivation, that's why. Because you're going you're gonna to be more successful if you can create that kind of a team where people love what they do, they're really good at it, and they're committed to the organization, you get the results. Versus coming in and saying, all right, people, we're going to get these numbers up. What the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> so we need to stop thinking about this as an as a either-or proposition. If we can get ourselves to the point where we realize this is a both and, and that there is a, an actual causal relationship, not just a correlation, but a causal relationship between creating an environment of great people that love what they're doing and our bottom line results, things will change just like that. So is that something that can be delivered in a workshop and in a consultancy? Is, is, it's easy to say, yes, 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 I understand. But is it something that can really be grokked? So yes and no. And actually, this is one of the reasons that I, I resisted doing workshops and trainings for, for many years, because there, there's a, an easy trap to fall into that says, okay, well, here's the way we're going to do this then. We want to build this place that people are going to love. So let's, uh, let's bring in a bunch of training, put everybody through it, and that should take care of it. <laughs> so no, training won't do that. But what it will do, if it's done right and done in the right context, is it puts 
It puts the right ideas in place and gets the right conversation started. And then the real work happens, the implementation work happens afterwards and ongoing and all of that. So the minute you treat any any workshop or training as a one-off transactional thing that's going to change our culture, you're, you're setting yourself up to fail. On the other hand, if you look at it as, as a way to uh, bring in the right ideas among the right people and get them talking about the right things and then give them the support that they need over time to implement it, that's gold. That is gold. And, and we can see some really significant effects of that. So it's interesting. Does your company then bring in support over time as well as part of what you, what you do when you're working with companies? Yeah, so we have, um, you know, there's a whole range of things that we'll do. So, so if a company says, look, really all we want right now is, is a workshop to bring our people together and have them discuss love is just damn good business. Have them really look at, at the LEAP framework and begin to apply it to their work. And that's really all we want, and we'll take care of it from there. That's cool. We'll do that. It's not, you know, there, there's, they're going to get great value out of it. And we have clients that work with us for years. We have a client that we're on uh, right now on our beginning, our second year. And this is an ongoing culture change process uh, where we get involved in, in every aspect of the business. So, for example, the question that we're trying to answer for anybody, and, and the answer is going to look different depending on where we are, is you know coming back to love is just damn good business. Well, if we really operationalize love in the way we do business, what implication would that have for the kind of people that we hire and how we hire them? How will it affect our HR policies? How will it affect our performance reviews? What, what should we do differently? What impact will that have on our customer policies, our product and service delivery? How do we handle complaints, right? If we really loved people... How would we do this differently? Because back to what we were talking about before. So that's a lot of work, and that's really in the weeds. And in that case, we can, you know, we can operate as guides along the way. Now, ultimately, they, this is true for any, any process. The, you know, the client has to do the work. But, but we, can, you know, we can serve a very valuable role in being their guides and, as the word suggests, consultants. We're consulting with them. So you're a leader right now and you're leading a large organization and they're bringing action to your ideas and bringing them out into the world. And that has to be a huge investment of your time and your energy and your attention. Yet you found the time to go and write a book. And this is not just your first book. This is your fourth book. I'm really curious about your process when it comes to writing books. As somebody who's written four books and we put them out there into the world, how has your process evolved? So... My writing process consists primarily of the time I spend berating myself for not writing. <laughs> does, does that come from a place of love? It does. It does not. <laughs> it comes from a place, a place of deep self, self-loathing. <clears throat> no, it's, uh, it, it, it varies from book to book. So my previous three books, I have written every word. And the first three books, uh, Radical Leap, Radical Edge, Greater Than Yourself, are all written as parables. They're written as novels. And so this is a creative process for me, as, as well as, as a way to, you know, to teach the ideas. So I love, I love that process. It's, it's always kind of love-hate. You know, it's that old expression that's been attributed to many people that, you know, the act of writing is sitting down at the keyboard and staring at the screen until blood breaks out on your forehead. So this book is a little different in that I, I work with, uh, with a, co, a co-writer, and he he's actually kind of shows up almost as a ghostwriter because his name isn't even on the book. But it was really, his name is Stephen Caldwell, a phenomenal writer who knows my work inside and out. So it was really a lot of give and take between the two of us. I wrote chunks of it. He wrote chunks of it. He wrote some things. I farberized it, you know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, so it was a, a back and forth. So in a lot of ways, this was the easiest book that I've ever written because he did a lot of the heavy lifting. I'm really, really grateful for that. And we work really, really well together. So that made that a lot easier. So my process for this book was really very different. I kind of relied on on Stephen to kind of keep us on track. And then, you know, once you know, we're, this book is coming, is published by McGraw-Hill. So then once, you know, we offered them the proposal and the sample and then they... They bought the book and then it was, you know, we had a deadline and all that. So I'm actually driven by deadline. 
my first book, The Radical Leap, I wrote in its entirety before we sold it. So I had no deadline other than my agent every so often just saying, hey, how's it going, man? How you doing? <laughs> and it took me a couple of years to finish it. The second and third books, and the third, third book, you know, Greater Than Yourself, came from uh, uh, Currency, which is an imprint of Random House. Deadlines, right? They paid in advance and they had a deadline. And that made it happen faster for me. So deadlines are important to me in terms of getting things done. And, and they create a great deal of stress. But I've also noticed that no deadline creates a different kind of stress. So any of my approaches to writing apparently always involve stress. I've just come to terms with that. But, you know, there are some people that are very process-oriented when it comes to writing. When I was writing my first book, I asked one of my friends and colleagues and mentors who's, who had written quite a bit, I said, so tell me, what is, what is your process? I asked this question a lot, just to kind of, because I'm finding my way in, in the world as a writer. And so one of my friends said, okay, my process is I get up at, I get up at 4 a.m., then I write for a couple of hours, and then I go for a walk, and then I come back and I take a nap, and then I get up, at, you know, this whole process... And, and he went through this whole thing. I said, well, that was, that was, thank you for that. I said, but honestly, you know, I heard I get up at four and everything after that was, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> it's just not my, it's not going to happen for me. I do notice that I tend to be more creative earlier, earlier in the morning, but not that early. So I, you know, I do try to organize my days around my, my own kind of natural creative biorhythms as far as that goes. And so all of the books that you've written, though, have been written with an agent and with an external publisher. Yes. You haven't done anything yourself like, as a self-published. And the reason is because of the nature of my work, I think. Well, well, first of all, when The Radical Leap and The Radical Edge first came out, so it was 2004, 2006, it was published by Dearborn, which then became Kaplan. Uh, and then they got out of the business book business. So I actually got the rights back to those books. So I do now I do publish those books myself. I decided not to take them to another mainstream publisher. Uh, Greater Than Yourself, as I mentioned, is at, is at Penguin Random House. And then we decided for the new book to go with McGraw-Hill, which is now, since their recent merger, the, literally the biggest publisher in the world. And the reason is, not so much because I'm a big fan of the traditional publishing, you know, mainstream publishing world, because I'm not, for a lot of reasons, but because of the, uh, of the brand recognition. I mean, McGraw-Hill is an iconic brand. So, so it, it contributes to the credibility of the book, and it contributes to my credibility as a you know, business uh, advisor and speaker, as opposed to brought to you by Farber Productions, you know, the latest book. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it, it depends on your objective. So, you know, I get asked this question by people all the time who want some advice on, you know, writing and speaking and all that. Nowadays, it's so easy to self-publish, and you can get you can do really high-quality work and even get some fairly decent distribution because you know, I mean, nowadays it's really you know Amazon is the key anyway, uh, one could argue, and there's no barrier to entry. Anybody can publish, and of course, the downside to that is there's no barrier to entry, and anybody can publish. So there's a lot of noise out there, and then you have to do what you can to cut through the noise and and bring visibility to your book. But for me, mainstream publishing made more sense because of the, the co-branding element of it. If it weren't for that, I'd probably, and, and I wouldn't put it past myself and my team to self-publish a book, you know, sometime down the road. I could imagine the, the self-publishing has just evolved so much in the, in the last few years. It's been amazing what's possible in that area. And you, you're in a unique position to be able to say you've taken books back from an imprint and pub published them yourself. So you can see what the difference is in terms of distribution. And I'm curious what differences you see. Well, the, the main difference is money. You know, I have a, a much higher margin on my own books because I own them, right? Whereas with, with a mainstream publisher, you, you know, they buy the publishing rights. So they produce the book. They distribute the book. You still have to sell the book. So that's a misconception that a lot of people have. The publisher doesn't do squat. As far as, you know, actually getting the book into people's hands. Thank you for saying that and letting everybody hear it. It's, well, that's absolutely true. Anybody, you know, nobody's going to argue with you on that. Unless you're, unless you're a, you know, big time celebrity and that's part of your deal and all that. But for the rest of us, we got to sell our own books either way. And then you get paid a royalty usually calculated by the list price of the book in some way. So for the books that I own, I'm not getting paid a royalty from somebody. I'm literally making the margin between the cost of the production of the book and and the sale price. So that also gives me greater flexibility in terms of pricing it for, for my clients. 
and it makes it easier for me to give books away when I want to do that because it's only you know it's only going to cost me a few bucks or whatever it is. And it also gives me more flexibility in how I repurpose the material. So I can I can do whatever I want. I own the rights, so I can I can chop out a few pages and put it over here on this blog. I can it, you know I I have no constraints whereas with a traditional publishing contract, if I want to give somebody a free copy of the book, I have to buy it from the publisher and then give it away. It speaks to your motivation in writing these books, because for some people, the money is a is a critical factor. But at the stage that you were at in your career when you wrote your first book, it sounds like that was already not the main focus. Yeah, I mean, it was it was really about the visibility and getting in terms of a of a tangible payoff. It's about visibility. In terms of the impact of the work, it's a broader impact. So, you know, I really got lucky in my in my very first book because they did actually Dearborn at the time doesn't exist anymore. They actually put resources into the launch of the book. They hired a PR firm. They really gave it a lot of support, and it did it did really well. I mean, Leap has sold over the years. It sold a couple hundred thousand copies, but it made a couple of the a couple of the lists and 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 got a really good berth. But here's, here's my point in this, David, is, is that there is an amazing thing that happens as an author that is still almost mysterious to me. When you have a book that reaches a lot of people, what happens is, as the author, you begin to connect with those people, and you don't even know that they exist. But you're connecting with them through your ideas, right? Your ideas are connected with them, but they still feel a personal... You know when you read a book that you really love and you feel this personal connection to the author? Well, that author doesn't even know you exist, right? So for, if you flip that around, it's very... It's, it, it's kind of mystical. Because what started to happen, and especially in this day and age, it's easy to do, I started to get emails from people that... Read, picked up the book in a, what do you call it, bookstore? Remember those? Picked up the book in a bookstore and loved it and sent me an email to say that, and it just, it just kind of blew my mind. I mean, it still blows my mind, honestly. But in the beginning, it was, it was really an entirely new experience. So what I started doing, whenever I'd get an email like that from somebody, I picked up the phone and I called them, which completely <laughs> blew their minds. And it's like, hey, Steve Farber here, just got your, got your email. Thank you so much for that. That was really thoughtful. It's like, what? <laughs> and who is this? I had one guy hang up on me. You know, he said, no, I just not, he was like, thought it was a prank. But honestly, I have several friends that I count now as among my closest friends that started that very way. They sent me an email. I picked up the phone. I called. And we've been friends ever since, 15 years later. That is an amazing story. It kind of begs the question how your how your marketing approach and your your lifestyle approach around this has evolved as social media came up around you after you published your first book and as you've published your subsequent books. Yeah, it's a completely different animal now, isn't it? I mean, blogging was going on. I, I did have a blog when, you know, back in 04. And that was actually my first experience in connecting with people, you know, through the internet. So before social media, but blogging was there, and it, in some ways, a similar dynamic. And you know, through the comments, we used to comment. Actually, remember that on people's blogs, we actually commented and responded. Now we do all that on social media, but it's changed a lot. And for me, you know, I'm I'm really not. I could be a lot better at marketing. I'm really not. I, I don't consider myself to be very good at it. And you know, I'm always trying to align myself with people that really, you know, know how to do this stuff better than I do. But I I actually like social media. And the key for me is, and I've always felt this responsibility, and I feel it even more now, that particularly given the kind of subjects that I write about, let's take love is just damn good business. I mean, think about it, right? Think about the implications of what expectations people would have of the author of that book, right? So I take this very seriously that my job, my primary job, is to do the best I can to be an example of whatever it is that I'm teaching. That's pretty high expectations that I that I put on myself. And I believe me, I don't claim to be perfect. It's it's uh, you know there's things that I'm really good at and things that uh, not so much, right? But but I do take the, I take that responsibility seriously. So so through social media, 
and whenever I get the, the wonderful opportunity to meet people face-to-face, -face, whether it's at a speaking event or they come to one of my events or you just happen to run into somebody. I remember one of the great author stories that all of, any author would love to experience is one day I was, you know, I was flying back from a gig and I was sitting in first class and sitting next to somebody and making small talk and say, well, what do you do? Yeah, I am insurance. What do you do? I, I write books. I really, what have you written? I wrote the, you know, the book called The Radical Leap. Goes, that, that's my favorite book. <laughs> and I was like, get, the, get out of here. What do you, but it actually turned out to be true. So my point is, my responsibility is to authentically reflect the core of what it is that I write. And I do. I think I do a pretty good job of that. It, it, is, it is who I am. Not that I, I you know, don't have days where, where I, you know, I can be you know, as much of an asshole as anybody else. But, but I think when people meet me, they see, and I hear this from folks a lot, oh, you're just like you come across in your book. Or you go, you're up on stage and I see you give your speech and I talk to you afterwards and it's the same person. That's my responsibility. And social media is one of the ways that we can do that. So I enjoy it. I, can just, I could get better at it. I could be more frequent with it. But again, I, it's all about the relationships for me. And it's a, it's a wonderful way to create that relationship. You, you've taken that to heart, clearly, and establishing those relationships, it's always challenging. I know that my listeners are going to want to find out more about you, and they're going to want to read you and follow you and get more information. Where can I send them to find out more? Thank you. Uh, yes, yeah, stevefarber.com is where I, uh, where I live. And if you can remember my name, you can find me pretty much anywhere, because on Facebook, it's Steve Farber. On Instagram, it's at Steve Farber. On LinkedIn, it's Steve Farber. On uh, Twitter, it's at Steve, you know, that, that whole thing. And then, of course, you know, Love is Just Damn Good Business is my new baby. And you can find that, uh, of course, on Amazon.com. And you'll find it and the other books on, on SteveFarber.com. My, you know, the, the commitment that I make to anybody is, as I said a few minutes ago, if you reach out to me, if you write to me, either by email or on social media, my commitment is that I'll respond. It might take me some time, but I will. And I know this sounds, this sounds rather sad and pathetic, but this is the way I make friends nowadays. <laughs> that doesn't sound sad or pathetic at all. It sounds, it, it's inspiring. And, and Steve, I've loved having you on the show. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you, Dave. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>